and in this my body, thyself glorify. That's the, uh, really the theme of the message this morning, and we're going to talk about that. Before I do, I just got a text message. Um, I have my cell phone with me. And uh, we had an interesting event happen on uh, Friday. We had some guests arrive from different parts of the country. And uh, as we got talking to the one that set up the, uh, the booking, uh, she said to me, she says, you're a Christian, aren't you? And I said, yeah. She says, praise the Lord. And she says, so are we. And uh, they're here actually running right this minute at mile 18, it looks like, on uh, the Nike run in San Francisco. And this is a group of Christians who uh, have gathered from all over the, um, the country and uh, they want to be a light and a testimony to other runners uh, wherever they go. And so we were talking about this, and it's actually kind of a mission is the way they look at it, a mission to reach other runners uh, for Christ. And I said, well, I said, you'll be happy to know that half of what you've given uh, as your rental is actually going to the work of the Lord. And I said, it's going to reach out to... Um, people who have never heard the gospel, translations of Bibles or translations of literature, and they go, wow, this is so great. And uh, they said, um, we want, the lady said, I want you to come and meet the rest of the group. There's about 20 of them. And she says, would you pray for us? And I said, sure, I'll pray for you. So I said, but before I do, so I told them the same story. And they go, wow, that's really great. Here's a mission on a mission, giving to a mission. That's great. We love it, you know. And so I said, here's the thing. As you run today, pray for the message, and I'll be praying for you as you run. And I said, probably every runner, if, if, you've, if you've never heard this, um, then it's a good time to hear it now. But probably ever, every runner has, at some point or other, heard the verse um, in Isaiah. And it says that the Lord talks about... Um, uh, they that grow weary, he, he will, um, they will mount up with, with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And so we prayed for them. And so I just got a text there at, as I say, mile 18 on their run. And uh, she says, good day, Don. We will run and not grow weary. Mile 18 and going strong. Praise God. So just uh, think about them, if you will, too, this morning. Um, in our passage in Ephesians, we're in chapter 5, and um, we've mentioned this before, but for those who are visiting, maybe we'll just do a quick recap. Um, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians really is a doctrinal foundation, what the Lord has done for us in saving us and delivering us from our sin. The last three chapters have to do with Okay, in light of that, in light of the fact that God has saved us, in light of the fact that we are His children, how should we live? How should we live? Should we live any differently than we did before? In chapter 1, it says of all believers that the Lord chose you before the foundation of the world. The Lord chose you to be His child. The Lord chose you to, uh, to be his son, to be his child, and to walk and live for him. And it says very clearly in the, in the book of Ephesians that God has works for you to do as a believer. And those works uh, we want to talk about a little bit today. So Ephesians starts with the Lord choosing you before the foundation of the world. Why did he choose us? That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. For three chapters, Paul writes of the wonderful things the Lord has done. What has he done for us? Well, he saved us. He redeemed us. He bought us back from the slave market of sin. He forgave all of our sins. He broke down the middle wall of partition that, that existed between Jews and Gentiles, and he has made one new thing, a new body, and all of us are part of that new body, the church. It says that we are seated with Christ. We are raised up together with him. And everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us because we are in him. 
Everything he has is ours. And it says that he has given us an inheritance. We talked about that, how you know, it would be one thing to be the son or the child of a rich man and upon his death receive all of his inheritance. But here we're talking about God, that we are heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ. Everything that he possesses, everything that he has, he has given to those he loves, his church, his bride. He has given us, uh, he's revealed to us um, his amazing love. He has given each one of us as believers a spiritual gift or spiritual gifts. He has done all of this to sinners who were far from him. And uh, he did it, um, he did all of this and more because as I said in a recent sermon, he wanted to bless his bride. That's what he wanted to do. And he has done an amazing job of that. And for some reason, I think sometimes we just don't get it. We just don't understand how much he has done for us and how much he is doing for us even now. Now, he describes in Ephesians our life by using the word walk. Whenever we see the word walk in Ephesians, uh, or you walk or you walked, he's talking about our life, the way we lived our life. And so he describes our life as a path upon which we walk. When you were unsaved, you were on the wrong path. You were on, as, the, as Jesus talked about, the broad road that leads to destruction. The whole world starts on that road. It's the broad road, and it's going the wrong way, and everybody's on it. Jesus talks about the broad road, and it leads to destruction. But when you are saved, he changes you. He takes you off of that road and he places you on a completely different road. It's 180 degrees different. It's going the opposite direction, but it's a narrow road. It's a narrow road that leads to life, eternal life. And so there's been a complete change of direction. And that's what the Lord does when he saves a person. He takes a person who is a sinner and there's a complete repentance, a turn of direction where a person is now going the other way from where he was uh, before. So I want you to take a look at, before we get into chapter 5, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 2 and see where we were. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Now he's talking to believers here, and it says, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which, here it is, you once walked. That's what you used to be like. That's what you used to do. What did you used to do? Well, you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. What he's saying here is this. You were marching to the tune of the devil. Whatever the devil wanted you to do, that's what you did. And you were quite happy to do so and ignorant of all the bliss that God had in store for you. Now, it's, that's who we follow. It says, among whom, also we all, uh, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship. Remember we talked about that? We are his masterpiece. We are the ones God set apart to make his masterpiece, to put on display for all eternity of the wonders of his grace in taking a sinner like me and a sinner like you and saving them and giving them, giving them all of this abundance that he has promised us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for what reason? For good works. 
which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, so take the beginning of this uh, section and the end of this section, and we have two different walks. Once we walked according to the course of this world, we fulfilled our lust, we did whatever felt good to us, whatever we wanted to do, whatever desires we had, that's what we pursued, and we were madly heading to hell, the broad road to destruction. Jesus saved us by his grace. He put us on a new path altogether. Now he says, now walk in the works that I prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So it's a completely different walk. It's a completely different path. We have changed direction. That's what repentance is. There's a song I like to listen to. I I like listening to old corny songs, but it's a good one. It says, he made a change in the way that I'm walking. He made a change in the way that I'm talking. Old things pass away. Behold, everything's new. He made a change in the life that I'm living. Born again, set free, finally forgiven. If he can make a change in me, he can make a change in you. And that's what the Lord Jesus does. He changes us radically from the inside out. The Lord has made you alive. He has taken you out of the kingdom of Satan. He has brought you into the kingdom of his love. As I mentioned, you will be on display for all eternity as a trophy of his grace. You are his masterpiece that he saved, that you might fulfill the works that God has prepared for you to walk in. God, therefore, has a plan for your life. Do you know what that plan is? Do you know what his plan is for your life? Well, I can tell you some of it today. We're going to look at some of that today. He saved you. Here's the, here's the ultimate plan, okay? This is the key, if you will, to the whole message. He saved you that you might be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he wants. That he wants to populate heaven with people just like his son, Lord Jesus. Okay? That's his goal. That's his desire for your life and for my life. He wants you to be like Christ. Can I ask you a question? Think about it. Don't raise hands or say anything out loud. Are you living like the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you conforming your life more and more to the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what he's wanting. So we would expect to see a changed life when a person uh, trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, as we grow in our Christian walk, we should become more and more like him. But what concerns me is that when I see people who say they have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and I don't see the evidence in their life. They say, well, this is the way I lived before, and it's still the same way I'm living now. That's not repentance. That's not a change of life. That's not the work of God. If a person is still living in sin, still continuing to practice sin, the Bible is very clear about it, they're not saved at all. Sometimes when you ask a person and you say, are you a Christian? They said, oh yeah, I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, When did you come to know him? At what point in time in your life did you come to know Jesus? Well, I, I don't know. Maybe when I was five. You know, I always loved the Lord. Maybe when I was 12. remember going, uh, in fact, I remember this, going down the aisle at church and, and uh, praying a prayer. I went to a Billy Graham crusade when I was probably 13 or 14. I made another trip down the aisle. All through my teenage years, I, I kept saying, Lord, I, I want you to save me. But I didn't want to change. I wanted my sin more than I wanted Jesus. And I continued to live in my sin. The practice of my life was sin. Was I saved? No, I wasn't saved. It wasn't until I was almost 20 years old and I repented before God and I said, I'm through with my sinful life. I'm through with the things that caused me shame. I'm through with those things that brought you to the cross. Lord, save my soul. I'm a dirty, rotten, wretched, filthy sinner. Save me. And the Lord did. And there was a change, a change in my life. You ask them, what changes have you seen in your life since you made your profession of faith? They go, well, well, nothing really. 
Well, give me a history of your life. Let me see what happened from the time that you professed at 10 or 5 or 3 or 1. What happened since then? What changes? Because there has to be a change. If you were on the broad road that leads to destruction, what happened once you got off that road and you're now on the narrow road that leads to life? What happened? What changes were there in your life? You say, well, nothing really. In fact, I just, you know, carried on and lived the same way. I like the, the person, I don't know who said this originally, but somebody said something like this. If it was illegal to be a Christian in this country and you were charged and arrested and taken to court as a Christian, would there be enough evidence against you? Wow. Is there enough evidence to prove that you're a Christian? Here's the test. 1 John chapter 2, verse 3. Now by this we know that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says... I know him. In other words, I made a profession. I went forward in an aisle. I was baptized. I, whatever. I know him. But does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk just as he walked. Okay? That's what it says. It's so plain. Don't be deceived. Okay? And we're going to see this, uh, this term come up again later in this passage about being deceived. Don't be deceived. The world, churches, religious organizations want you to uh, make professions and yet not believe. It's crazy. Here the Lord is very plain those who love him, those who know him, will keep his commandments. Okay, Paul explains in Ephesians chapter, chapters 4 through 6 what walking like Jesus looks like. Some of you have read the book, In His Steps. Do you remember that book? Um, some of you heard the phrase, maybe have it plastered on the bumper sticker, WWJD. It's, not, it's what would Jesus do? And that's really what Paul is talking about here. What does it look like to walk as Jesus walked? To ask in every situation in life, what would Jesus do? Well, we're in chapter 5. But before we get to chapter 5, I want to just blaze through chapter 4 one more time here. Because in chapter 4, we see that... God has given us so many new things, things that have changed. And I just want you to, to, I hope we didn't miss these as we went through them. First of all, he has given us new feet. So when he saved you, he gave you new feet. Did you know that? New feet. So what are these new feet? Well, it's, it's so that we can walk in unity with each other. We can walk together as... Um, John spoke about a few weeks ago. God gave us new gifts. What are those gifts? They're spiritual gifts that we are to use to exercise, we are to exercise to build up one another in our faith. Are you exercising your spiritual gifts? It's something you did not have before you came to know the Lord. It's something new, a new gift. Last week, Eric spoke about the transformation that takes place in every new believer. He gave us new lips. What were they for? So that we would no longer lie, but that we would speak the truth in love. He gave us a new attitude. What's the attitude that he's given to us? It's that we are no longer filled with anger and wrath. He gave us a new fight. Oh, so we are going to fight, are we? Isn't that wrath? No, it's a different kind of fight. We're now resisting the devil. We're now um, not giving up ground to the devil. He gave us new hands. What are the new hands for? So that we don't steal. So that we work hard. New hands. He's given us a new checkbook. Well, I like that. What's the checkbook for? So that when we labor and we earn money, and the money that we have is more than we need for our daily necessities, we might take that and we might use it to help those who are poor. It says that 
it says that we labor, working with our hands to give to those who are in need. And so what God has done in changing us, taking us off that broad road that leads to destruction, he takes people who are thieves and he makes them into philanthropists. He takes people who were only consumed with, with buying things for themselves and saying, hey, I don't need all of this. How can I use this for the sake of others who are in need? God has given us a new mouthwash too. He's given us a, a way of sanitizing our speech. Instead of derogatory, inflammatory, corrupt words, we are to use our tongues to build up other saints. All of that is in chapter 4. And then God has given us a new heart. He gives us a heart transplant. The old heart was filled with what? Well, it says bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, malice, evil speaking. But the new heart that he has given us is a tender heart that is kind to one another and is forgiving one another in just the same way that God has forgiven us. That's the new heart that he has given to us. When I hear people claiming to be Christians and they can't get along with other believers, they aren't exercising their spiritual gifts, they show no evidence of holiness, they continue to lie, they continue, continue with outbursts of anger, they constantly are tempted and fall to the devil, they steal, they never give to God or to those who are in need, they speak in a derogatory way about others, and they are filled with bitterness, anger, wrath, malice, and they cannot forgive. It's hard for me to imagine that that person is truly a believer. And yet there are people who are foolish enough to say, oh, they're just not walking with the Lord. If that is the characteristic of a person's life, they are not saved. You may remember that when the gospel was preached to the Ephesians, um, Paul came into this town. It was a, uh, an idolatrous people. They had, uh, there probably was a meteorite or something like that that at some point in history had fallen to the ground in their area. They took this and said, oh, this is a, this is a god. And they made a temple around it. And, and they uh, worshipped the goddess Diana. And they had a temple, a beautiful temple built in the town. And these people were idolaters. And uh, they were practicing uh, magic, black, black magic and, and black arts. And uh, Paul came in and he told them about the love of God of the real God, not Diana, but of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for their sins and how he was uh, crucified for them. He was buried and he rose again the third day. And they trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and there was such a radical change in the lives of the Ephesians that they said, we can't continue living the same way we did. And they gathered together all of their black arts, their, their black magic books, and they put them in the town square and they lit a fire and they had a bonfire in the middle of town and they burned up all of these books. That's, my dear friends, that's repentance. That's a change of direction. They said we cannot participate in our former way any longer. We cannot go back to that again. And we're not going to sell it on eBay and make a profit from it and have other people do it. We're going to burn it and get rid of it. We're going to be done with our old life. And that's what we have to do. If we're truly saved, put away the former things and turn uh, back, turn to the Lord. And so by doing this, they were saying, we're through. We're done with our old way of life. We never want to go back to our old life again. God has done something new. What about you? Do you still play with your old way of life? Do you still go back in your memory to the old things, to your old way? Have you really made a clean break from your sin? Have you had your own bonfire? I remember when I came to know the Lord, and there were things that I had in my possession, and I said, well, I, this reminds me of sin. This reminds me of a person I sin with. This reminds me of actions that I have committed that are wrong. Some of these things had nothing to do with anything evil at all. I had a brand new tennis racket. It just reminded me of some, I mean, a badminton racket. 
reminded me of somebody that gave it to me and a sinful relationship we had. And I put it all together. I couldn't do a bonfire. I would have been arrested for arson or something like that. But I broke it up. My sister, I remember my sister coming out and seeing me do it. She said, what are you doing? That's a brand new record. I said, I know. She says, are you crazy? I said, yes, I'm crazy in love with the Lord. <laughs> I'm done with my old way of life. Bible tells us to even hate the garment spotted by sin. Those garments that remind us of sinful past behavior. Old books, old magazines, old videos, DVDs, pictures. Whatever it was in your life that reminds you of sin, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Whatever it is. You've got stuff on your computer. If you can't delete it, throw your computer away. Start fresh. Destroy these things beyond use. And never go back to your old way of life again. So now Paul speaks about something else that's new that God has given us. And that is a new sexuality. You say, wow, you're going to talk about sex in church? Yeah. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know that no fornicator no unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. I remember when I was a child living in Vancouver, occasionally we would have a very uh, heavy snowfall. And I remember on some occasions when my, it snowed overnight and there were inches or even feet of snow on the ground and my father would go out, he'd, before going out he'd put his jacket on and his great big boots on and I was just a little kid and he'd go out into the snow and crunch, crunch, crunch into the snow and he'd say, come on out and help me um, scrape the snow off the sidewalks in the driveway. So I'd go out there and, you know, I mean, it came up to here on him but when I stepped in it, it you know... <laughs> It was a lot further up on my body, and it was like trying to get through the snow, you know? And so I learned something, that it was easier for me if I just put my foot in the same foot place, footprint of my father. And if I did that, I didn't sink so far, because he had already compressed the snow. And so that's what I would do. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's saying, imitate God. Follow his footsteps. Walk in the steps of Jesus. And in what way are we to imitate God? In love. In love. How does God love? Well, there are three ways that God loves, and there are many more, I'm sure, but there are three things I want to bring out here. One is that His love is a forgiving love. His love is a forgiving love. His love... Number two is a selfless or sacrificial love. It's all about the object of his love. Third, his love is an unconditional love. His love reaches to the worst of sinners because I know, I know this because it reached me. His love is unconditional. Verse two, um, it says, and walk in love, as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Walk in love. Our life should be marked by love. What kind of love? A love that is quick to forgive. Is your love like that? Think about your love, wives, to your husband, husbands to your wives. Is your love like that? Quick to forgive. A love that is quick to forgive. A love that is selfless. It keeps on giving and giving and giving even if it's not reciprocated. That's the kind of selfless love he's talking about. 
A love that is unconditional. It doesn't matter whether the person is a friend or a relative or even an enemy. Our love is unconditional. We are to love unconditionally. And the steps in front of us where we need to plant our feet are the steps of the Lord Jesus. He loved the unlovely, the rude, the maimed, the lame, the brokenhearted, the hookers, the IRS agents of his day, the woman at the well, the woman caught in the act of adultery. He loved Judas. He loved Peter who betrayed him, who um, denied him. He loved the thief on the cross who was uh, railing him. And wonder of wonder, he even loved me. And he loved you. And just how much did he love you? Well, it tells us here in this passage. He loved that God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We were his enemies, and he died for us. That's the extent of his love. Christ died for you. Christ also has loved us, it says, and given himself for us. I think in reality, love can be measured by how much it gives. Love can be measured by how much it gives. And I'm, I thank God that he didn't simply send me a box of C's candies. I'm glad he didn't send me uh, a dozen roses as, as the extent of his love. He went to the cross. He gave his life. He shed his blood to pay for my sins. That's the extent of his love for me. In what way did he give himself? As an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. We were filthy, rotten, putrid, dead, decaying sinners who deserved nothing from God but judgment. And Jesus went to the cross and he paid my penalty and your penalty by pouring out his blood for you. And in doing so, he was offering up a sacrifice to God, an acceptable sacrifice, a sweet-smelling sacrifice that was pleasing to God. And the Lord and God said of his son that he was satisfied by raising him from the dead. When we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved. And then God does a revolution in our hearts and in our lives and changes us from the inside out so that we're never the same again. If it was our sin that caused him to go to the cross, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God's, or Christ's love can be measured by his sacrifice. His love is a sacrificial love, a selfless love. He did it for us and a forgiving love. Because of his death, the penalty of our sin has been paid, and now he offers forgiveness of sins to whoever believes in him. By the way, I want to say this to you, because a lot of people mix this up. Love is not an emotion. Love is not an emotion. Love is a choice. Love is a choice. God chose to love us. And in doing so, he acted out his love for us by going to the cross. It was a choice he made. Now, emotions may be involved, and I'm sure they are. It's not that he is without emotion. But the core, the center of love is a choice. When you say to somebody, I love you, or when a husband and a wife stand together at the front of a church and they're married and they say, I will love you till death parts us, that's a choice. Whether the emotions are there or not, whether the emotions remain in the marriage or not, it makes no difference. It's a choice and it is love. You say, well, I'll just grit my teeth and bear up with this woman or this man. That's not it either. Love looks at the other person and says, you know what? I am going to live my life for you. What your needs are, what you need, what you want is more important to me than any need that I have. That's true love. Paul says, now you love just like that. Just the way Christ loved you, you love just like that. That kind of love is not natural for us, by the way. We are not raised that way. We are raised with the idea that everything in the world revolves around me and my needs, what I want, how I feel, what gives me pleasure. That's what I want because that's what I need. That's me. 
this meism is how we're raised. It's, it's every part of our, uh, our life. And the Lord is really trying to change us. The kind of love we're talking about is not natural. It's, it's not selfish. It's selfless. Our love is not forgiving. It holds grudges. People rub us the wrong way, and we go, well, they're going to pay for that one. We're taken off, we immediately take them off our Christmas card list. That's the first thing we do, or worse. And then we look for ways of hurting them. They hurt me, I'm going to hurt them back. That's not a forgiving love. Our love is conditional. We often say, you know, well, I'll love you if you do this for me. There's a famous uh, video on YouTube of a little kid. He's probably, I don't know, two maybe. And uh, his mom comes to him and says, do you love me? And he goes, not, not all the time. I, I'm not going to do it as good as he does it, but not all the time. Well, when do you love me? I only love you when you make me cookies. <laughs> and that's our kind of love. I'll love you as long as you keep doing things for me, as long as you keep giving me cookies, as long as you keep doing this for me or that for me, as long as I'm getting something out of it, I'll love you. But that's not the love we're talking about. The love we're talking about is I'm going to love you in spite of anything you do to me, in spite of any, any way you treat me. I'm going to love you that way. Walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, for every biblical truth, there is a counterfeit. And the greatest counterfeit of all is when it comes to love. The world's idea of love is so shallow, it's so empty, it's so perverted, and it's so distorted, and yet it seems that people um, buy into it. And people from all walks of life, whether they're saved or they're unsaved, it doesn't matter, everyone is looking for love. But most people are looking for love in all the wrong places. When the world talks about love, it usually has something to do with sex. Sex and love are equal in the world's mind in so many ways. Almost every song, every book, every poem, every reference to love, just change it, and it usually means sex. It doesn't mean love at all. Sex is even called making love, but it's not. It's, that's a perversion. Sex is not love. You understand? Sex is not love. Sex in a marriage is between two people who do love each other, and, and, and in loving one another, it's a wonderful thing, but... The way the world views it, sex is equal to love. That's not true. Verse 3. Here's where the perversion or the counterfeit or Satan's deceit comes in. It says, But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints. Let me read it from a different translation. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. What is fornication? Fornication is a very broad sexual term, and it means any sexual deviation at all. It includes premarital sexual relations. Sometimes in the scripture where you have the word fornication and adultery in the same verse, one, the, the fornication is referring to premarital sexual relations, and adultery, of course, after marriage or when somebody is married, having relations with someone who's not his um, wife or her husband. Um, but when it's, when it's used alone, it ref it's a broad term meaning all sexual perversion. It includes premarital sexual relationships, sex outside of marriage, adultery, incest, child molestation, homosexuality, bestiality, and so on. The Greek word for um, fornication is pornea. I'm going to say it slower. Porn-ia. Okay? That's where we get our word pornography from. Pornography is basically fornication. Ography is in writing. Okay? Or in print. Or in our, in our case today, in film or DVDs or whatever. Movies. And it's where we get our word porn from. Pornography literally means whore writing. That's what it means. The writing of fornication. Sexual immorality in print or in film, it's all lumped together because Jesus said that even to lust for a woman is equivalent to committing adultery. That's what fornication is. Uncleanness, 
or impurity. It refers to any kind of impurity, sexual impurity. There are so many um, disturbing perversions of the sexual relationship that I, I can't even discuss them here, nor would it be healthy, and we're even told not to discuss these things in the scripture. Um, it would not be healthy. But once you go down this path of fornication, it leads to all kinds of perversion. And one's morals affects one's beliefs. One's beliefs affects one's morals. They go hand in hand. Any form of impure behavior, impure thoughts, impure books, songs, videos, DVDs, internet, pornography, and on and on it goes. The point is that that may have been your life when you were on the broad road to destruction. That may have been your life before you were saved, but have you had that bonfire? Have you had that time in your life where you've taken all of that trash and put it together and destroyed it all and said, Lord, I want nothing more to do with my former way of life? That's what we're talking about. Walk in the steps of Jesus. Jesus did not view women as sex objects. Jesus did not lust after them or want to get something from them. He came to sacrifice himself for them and for the sins that they had committed. And we are told that we need to walk as Jesus walked. We need to look at women, men, not as sex objects, not as someone who we might get something from, not as some kind of a, uh, an accomplishment, but rather we need to look at women and say, Jesus loved them. Jesus loved them and saved them, just like he loved me and saved me. That's love. All this other stuff is the devil's counterfeit. Covetousness. You say, well, I don't get that. Why is covetous uh, listed here among sexual sins? What's that word doing here? Because generally when we talk about covetousness, we think in terms of um, money and possessions and things that we can accumulate and, and this desire, this strong desire for more money, more money, more money. And, and it's often used that way in the scripture. But covetous simply means a strong desire a desire for something that does not belong to us. And in the Old Testament, in the um, law, it even says you shall not covet your neighbor's um, uh, maidservants or manservants, their ox and their land, whatever they own, the possess, their houses, whatever it is. But it also says you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Okay? That is what he's talking about, coveting someone that does not belong to you. She is someone else's wife, someone else's uh, sister, someone else's daughter, whatever. Do not covet your neighbor's wife. This is a lie of Satan again. Hollywood, the media, and our own hearts tell us that if we could only have the prettiest woman on earth, I would be totally satisfied. I would be completely fulfilled. Really? Have you watched the prettiest women on earth and the most handsome men on earth and their marriages? Have you not paid attention? They're not satisfied either. They could be the, the, the most glorious couple as far as physical appearance is concerned, and they're not satisfied. It's a lie. If only I could have that sports figure or that handsome actor is my man. I would be totally satisfied. And people fantasize about these, these people. And it was, um, it, if that was the way of satisfaction, then every marriage in Hollywood would be ideal. But they end so quickly. It's not true love. It's lust. It's fantasy. It's selfishness. It's unforgiving. It's what's in it for me, conditional love. It's not love at all. Paul says, don't let any of these sins be associated with anyone who calls himself or herself a Christian. If this is the practice of a person's life, it is doubtful. It is doubtful that they are saved at all. The behavior has no place in the Christian life. It should not be named as having occurred in our midst. It should not be associated with those who profess to know Christ at all. You say, well, I've committed those sins. I know. And there are many people who have. 
many people. And Paul looked at the Corinthian church one day, and he talked about this subject again with them. Because in Corinth, it was a port city. Sexual sin was pervasive throughout the city. And Paul said to them that, well, let's read it. Um, uh, I, no, let's just, let's just talk about it. He's saying, look, all of these sins, whether it's uh, fornication, adultery, uh, perversion, all the rest of it, he said, and such were some of you. Yeah, this is the way you were when you were on the broad road to destruction. Such were some of you. But now you are washed, you are sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. So you say, well, is, is sex wrong then? Is it dirty? No, God created it. But it is meant for one man with one woman in the bonds of one marriage. But even in marriage, the sexual relationship must be pure and free from perversion. The sexual relationship must be done in love. Love that is selfless, not selfish. Love that is forgiving, not holding a grudge. Love that is all about how to please the other person and not about what I'm going to get out of this. I've often said that a good verse to put over the marriage bed is uh, love does not seek its own. You say, but what about me? I have this longing for sex. I can't control myself. I have this just innate desire for it. And I'm not married. Well, Paul answers that question too. Get married. It's really simple. He says, but I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. You say, well, it's not my fault. God hasn't brought me a wife or God hasn't brought me a husband. Well, pray. That's the first thing. Pray. And the second thing is, you better get out there and find her, men. Why? Because it says in the scripture, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. But you better not be looking for a trophy wife. Okay? I already discussed that with the Hollywood girls. A fantasy of your own imagination is idolatry. Do you know that? That's what it's talking about. It's idolatry. You have, there are these guys and these girls who have this perfect image of what their husband or their wife needs to look like, and they have brought into this lewdness and uh, per sexual perversion of Hollywood where almost everyone on the screen is made of plastic, and it's doubtful their parts even come with a five-year warranty. If you're a Christian... Love is a choice. Love is a choice. You can choose to love the ugliest person on earth and be completely satisfied in a marriage relationship with that person. Love is a choice. You choose to be unselfish. You choose to care more for them than you care for your own needs. You, you choose to repent of the lie that uh, has been brought to you by Hollywood and the trashy romance novels. Love chooses to give in sickness and in health for better, for worse, when a body is toned or, where, or when gravity has taken its toll. Love continues when there are aches and there are pains and sorrow and loss in joys and tragedy for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. And it's not all about sex. It's about love. There's a big difference. So preacher, you say, are you against sex? Well, obviously not. I have seven children. That didn't happen by shaking hands. But God clearly says that marriage bed is to be undefiled, and those who defile it will be judged. The Scripture says that. So Paul's not finished. Uh, Ephesians 5, verse 4. Neither filthiness nor foolish talking nor coarse jokes. These are not for you. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Jesus once said that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When I listen to people and I hear what they have to say, I, I know what's in their heart. It's a, it's a dead giveaway. Open your mouth and say something, I know what your heart is like. When I hear people relaying obscene stories, sexual jokes, foolish talking, 
looking for ways of turning the conversation back to these subjects or looking for sexual innuendos in every turn of conversation, it tells me that's where their heart is at. It's disgraceful to hear professing Christians talk with such loose morals. God has called us to give thanks. Foolish talk is the next thing he says. The root of this Greek word is moron, moronic talk, moron. It's the gutter mouth. It's the locker room filth. It's the language of the drunk, the fool, and the whore. It's the ghetto language of rap musician. It's the high school dropout who thinks it's cool to be stupid. God is calling us to give thanks. Coarse jesting, what is that? Well, this is the sophisticated sexual pervert. It's the guy or gal who is the stand-up comedian, the late-night talk show host, the quick-witted office guy who can take every conversation and throw it into the garbage can of his mind. God is calling us to give him thanks. If any of this stuff is a regular part of your conversation, it really makes me wonder where you stand with God. For God has called us to give thanks. You know, the Bible tells us that about our tongue, that it's like a stream. And a stream cannot pour forth good water and poison water at the same time. And if the source of the stream is poison, perverted, then the whole stream is going to be that way. It tells me something about the life of that person. But if the, stream, if the, if the source of that stream is pure and what comes out of the mouth is pure, then it tells me something about the source or the, about that person as well. The conversation should be directed at giving thanks to God. Now, in case you're wondering, um, are people who practice this kind of behavior saved? The answer is no, they are not. How do I know that? You see, you're judging. No, I'm not. Paul's judging. And he got this from God, so I think we're on pretty safe ground. You know, I, I told you this, but I professed faith when I was probably five or six in a Sunday school classroom. I professed faith again when I was 12. I professed faith again at 13 and then 15 and 17 and whatever, all these times. And I wasn't saved at all. I made all of these decisions but never uh, really knew the Lord. Why? Because my subsequent life proved uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was not saved. The evidence was overwhelming that I was not a believer. And my greatest fear this morning is that there will be some in our midst here who hear these words and say, well, I'm okay. I professed when I was young. I'm all right. You know, Nothing has ever changed. There's never been repentance. There's never been a change of life. There's never been a time when I was taken off that broad road and put onto that narrow road, but I'm okay. Really? It scares me to hear people talk like that. After I made a profession, continued living in sexual sins, sexual fantasies, immoral talk, unclean stories, unclean actions, but I know I'm going to heaven, really. This is what Paul says in chapter 5, verse 5. For this you know, that no fornicator, no unclean person, no covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon sons of disobedience. No fornicator, no unclean person, no covetous man has any inheritance in the kingdom of God or Christ and God. The world and the devil will try to deceive you with empty words about how you're okay. Everything is fine. But God plainly says, because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You are under the wrath of the judgment of God if you continue to practice these things things. The Bible says marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. In Galatians chapter 5, it says, now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. If this is your practice, you are under the judgment of God. It's as simple and as plain as I can make it. 
And so this morning, I call upon you, if this is your condition, to repent of your sin and to turn to the Lord and be saved, be cleansed, be changed. And God will deliver you from the perversion of your own heart. It is clear that from the Scripture that God will judge immorality. There are two occasions that come to my mind here. One is found in Numbers chapter 25, and one is a case of fornication in Israel. It involved not only fornication, but idolatry as well. But uh, in chapter Numbers 25, 1 through 9, there were the Israelite men saw the, the Moabite women, and they said, hey, there are some easy targets. Let's go get them. And off they went, and 24,000 men died because of sexual immorality. Um, in, I think it was over a two-day period. 23,000 in one day, 24,000 altogether. And the second is the case of Sodom and Gomorrah. The sin was homosexuality. And God poured out his wrath upon those cities with fire and brimstone from heaven. And he spoke in, in no uncertain terms about his view of sexual perversion. And it was um, God's mercy and his grace that he delivered Lot from that. Lot was living in the midst of it and did not take a stand against it. God in his mercy delivered him from it and delivered him out of the midst of the overthrow. The judgment of God may not come with fire and brimstone in our generation, but it has come, and it is coming. The judgment of God can be seen today in, in the STD, sexually transmitted diseases, AIDS, mental, emotional, physical changes in the behavior of people who are sinning in this kind of lifestyle. Don't let anyone deceive you. This is not love. This is not love. Don't let anyone deceive you. Don't let the current political or social agenda fool you into believing that these people are not under the wrath of God. Judgment is coming. Last verse. For Christians, we are warned, therefore do not be partakers with them. You do not want to incur God's wrath. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. I'm going to tell you one little story. We'll end with this. We're going to pass on the other thing. I heard a story this weekend of a little boy who, whose father is a musician, and he, the little boy is five years old, and he was going to be a, part, a participant in a play at church, and uh, it was going to be the Easter Sunday message, and the little boy, five, was going to play the part of Jesus. And so they wrote the scripture in a way that the kids would understand what it said, and they, they memorized their lines, and they presented their case and this little boy was dressed in flip-flops and he had his father's white shirt on that was long enough to go down to the floor and he was um, acting out the part of Jesus and it came time to pray in the garden and he bowed down and he said God I, I don't want to have to go to the cross but if that's what you want me to do I'll do it for them I'll do it for you and I'll do it for them because I love them and um, he got up, and he was, they acted out the, tri the, the uh, um, arrest, and uh, they took him and put him on a piece of cardboard, like a cross, put ketchup on his hands, and laid him out there, and the little kids picked him up and carried him to a place where he was going to be crucified. And then they took him to a place where there was going to be a, a tomb, and he put him in the tomb. And then the little girls, three or four years old, came along, and uh, they played the part of the women who came to the to the tomb, and uh, they cr cried, and they said, oh, why did he have to die? And he gets up from his place, and he says, it's okay. I'm not dead. I'm alive. I'm alive. And uh, they all were happy, and, and the father was so proud to watch his son play this part in the, in the play, and then the son turned around, and he went back into the tomb. And he, his father said, no, that's not part of the story. And uh, he thought, now you're embarrassing me, kid. That's not how it goes. And then he peeked out from behind the tomb, and he goes, ready or not, here I come. <laughs> and he said, the father said this, he said, you know, when I heard that, I thought all he ever knew as a kid, five years old, 
was playing hide-and-seek. He must have been playing hide-and-seek. Ready or not, here I come. And I want to just say this to you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He suffered and paid the penalty for your sins in full to cleanse you from all of this and to make you whole. It wasn't ketchup on his hands. It was his blood that was poured out for your sins. And he really did die for you as a payment for your sins. And he really was buried. And he really did come back to life. Now, he didn't go back into the tomb. But he does say this, in a sense, in a child's sense, ready or not, here I come. Jesus is coming again. Are you living in such a way that you're ready for the coming of the Lord? Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you this morning, we are sobered by the words of Paul and ultimately your words to us. We are sobered, Lord, by the judgment that is coming. And we recognize, Lord, that you have already borne our judgment in your own body on the tree. And we are so grateful, Lord, and thankful to you for that. Lord, we don't want to continue living in sin that grace might abound. But, Lord, rather we want to have no part in the works of darkness, our former life, the former things that cause us shame to this day. Lord, we just cry out to you that if there are any here who have been trusting in a false profession, that today might be the day when they really mean business with you and that they truly, Lord, repent of their sin and turn to you as Savior and Lord. We pray, Lord, that if there are those in our midst who are still playing with Uh, fire, Lord, that they might burn up all of these things, destroy them all, that they might be done forever uh, with this part of their life, the life that is uh, a life of shame and sin and is um, going to bring judgment, we pray. Lord, we just ask you that you would come soon and that you would deliver us, Lord, uh, into eternal bliss with you. We look forward to that day and say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. As we go now, Lord, we pray that we might walk as Jesus walked, that we might love as Jesus loved, without selfishness, with forgiveness, Lord, without any kind of hesitation, that we might love just as you have loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.